video game the movie the podcast all right welcome back everyone to video game the movie the podcast the show where we apparently consume exclusively zombie movies i'm your host lexi conwell i'm another host mackenzie eastrom and i am another other host nathan eastrom And Lexi is right. We've got another zombie movie. Today, we are talking about Doom. At a distant research facility, the final 10% of the human genome has just been discovered. And with it, all hell has broken loose. Now, a call for help has gone out. Game time. Listen up, man. We're going in hot. If it breathes, kill it. There's something coming up behind you. It's in the sewer! (laughs) What is that? We gotta go now. Evacuate! Evacuate! Sir, are you okay? The movie based on the ancient shooter game about shooting demon zombies uh, on Mars. It's uh, it's a movie now with Dwayne the Rock Johnson and some other sort of recognizable actors whose names I don't know. Yeah, the other two biggest names are Carl Urban, who most people would recognize from Lord of the Rings. He plays Aomer. He's also the rebooted Judge Dredd. He's also in one of the new Marvel movies. He was in uh, Thor Ragnarok, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he is also, he's... Uh, I'm blanking on the character's name, but he's the guy that works with Hela for most of the movie. He's around. You you would recognize him. And Rosamund Pike, who plays his sister in the movie, who is most well-known, I think, for playing the wife in Gone Girl. Yes. But she's in a lot of things. She's a very good actor. Yes, she has has skills. And... Minor correction on Lexi's point here. It is based on a Doom game. It is more specifically based on Doom 3. Yes. This sounds like a good time to get into some of the background. I'm not going to go over all of the history of Doom because we could do an entire separate podcast that was just about that because Doom is one of the, and I cannot overstate this, one (laughs) of the most influential video games in the history of the medium. Yes, and you can get it to run on basically anything. Yeah, that's a good fun fact. There is... One of the main things that Doom was uh, revolutionary for was just how easy it was to mod as a game, but also just how low the requirements were to run it. Like, this thing is very lean, and as a result of that, it has led to a community of people that take it as a challenge to get Doom to run on anything with a visual display. And it mostly works. Oscilloscopes calculators Uh, pregnancy tests pregnancy tests you can run doom on anything 
Yeah, so Doom <laughs> was made in 1993 by the company id Software. Uh, it was their follow-up to the incredibly successful Wolfenstein game, uh, which is kind of the grandfather of the first-person shooter genre, and Doom and Wolfenstein collectively are probably why the FPS is what it is in games today. Without those two, it would have Gaming probably would have taken a very different direction. But the basic setup is that you play as an unnamed Marine sent to investigate some disturbances on a research base on the moons orbiting Mars. And when you get there, the place is overrun with what appear to be aliens. But the further you get into the game, the more clear it becomes that these are actually demons pouring out of a portal from hell that was opened during the research. And you end up going through the portal and fighting demons in hell before crawling your way back out through a hidden doorway. Uh, But some of the demons get out with you, and that is the setup for Doom 2, because in Doom 2, all of the demons have gotten to Earth, and you have to fight them through actual cities and facilities on, on planet Earth. And that was followed up by Doom 64, which is another further extension of the story, but it's not really relevant to this movie, so I'm not going to go that deep into it. Uh, The development of Doom was pretty hectic, it sounds like. Some of the team really wanted to showcase the technical uh, abilities of the engine that they designed, so they wanted it to be a big, seamless, uh, single-level game where you just could run endlessly without loading screens or levels separating stuff but the limitations were just too much for like at the time to accomplish that so they ended up going back to a more level-based approach and some people wanted it to be more heavily story focused there's a whole doom bible that one of the main creatives put together that has tons of backstory and details that are not present in the game they're more implied But a lot of that would get reused in Doom 3, which was the first reboot of the franchise, kind of a soft reboot. There's some canonical evidence that this takes place before the first Doom, but it's not really important. What is important is that Doom 3 took the franchise in a different direction and leaned really heavily into the horror elements as opposed to the fast-paced action shooting elements, which is what the franchise was mostly known for. It has come back around to being known for with the recent reboots in the franchise. Yeah, the 2016 reboot and the sequel Doom Eternal are both much more tonally in line with the original games, whereas Doom 3 is almost more of a Half-Life kind of game. You arrive at the research facility on the surface of Mars and you walk through a number of rooms with just regular people doing their jobs. It's kind of everyday blue-collar stuff. And then the game kind of descends into chaos as you go further and further through it until you are eventually traveling through a portal to hell and fighting demons to stop them from taking over the reinforcement ships that are on the way and getting to the Earth. There's a lot I could get into surrounding the development and the technology, but it's not super relevant. What you really want to know is that Doom 3 is where most of the elements from the games are borrowed to adapt into the movie. And I think the most important thing to talk about in terms of adaptation, right out the bat, is there is no demons, there is no portal to hell in this movie. They just 
they just don't with the central premise of doom in this movie yeah there's a lot of stuff it's just not present but like i think what they did worked relatively well but we'll get into that yeah no i want to start with this there is no portal to hell in this doom movie and yet it is still one of the better adaptations (laughs) that i've seen on this show yeah, this movie is actually fine. And I think like the last third of this movie kind of kicks ass. <laughs> it it kind of goes fun places, actually. It has some interesting ideas and it does them well. But I think that those ideas will either you will either love or you will hate depending on if you are already a video game fan or not. Yes. Which I, I mean, if you're watching Doom, you're probably yeah, if you are watching Doom, you either love The Rock or you love video games, and either way, you're pretty well suited by this movie. Um, I do want to mention up front that there are parts of this movie, and I think it's entirely unintentional on the part of the screenwriters, that get a little bit eugenics-y, just a little bit. Um, yeah. And that's not great. Um, and it, I think it mostly comes with the territory of genetic modification, especially in like the era we're talking about, which is 2005, when people weren't really thinking that hard about it. Um, but I just want to bring that up up front. That's shitty. Uh, they should have found a way around that, but we'll, we'll keep that in mind as we continue through the rest of the film. To be fair, I mean, I don't know. It is a premise that I feel like could work, if it, assuming that it has any basis in anything. Like, it doesn't have to be good. <laughs> it, no one's saying that it is morally okay, but like, if if you go on the premise that it there's something to it, then like... Okay, I don't know. So let's start and actually explain what the heck we're talking about here, because at this point, it's probably getting confusing for anybody who hasn't seen Doom 2005, which I'm going to assume is most people. Yeah, this movie did not do well. It was a huge box office bomb. That's, it lost yeah. like $10 million. Oh. Which is kind of too bad, because <clears throat> of the movies we've watched, this doesn't seem like the one that should have lost so much money. No. This one was totally fine. How does Uwe Boll keep making money on his fucking movies? Yeah, but this guy doesn't for some reason. Uh, this <sighs> is also not directed by any of the standbys, which is interesting. It's a, it's a different guy who's got a different career and everything and a name I can't pronounce. So let's move into plot summary. Who wants to do plot summary? I did it last time. We'll do it. Lexo, go. All right. So the plot of Doom is follows Sarge, played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He leads a squad of soldiers, special ops soldiers, who all have gamer names, including Reaper, The Kid, Destroyer, um, Goat, Goat, Portman, and Mac, who's super not relevant compared to the rest. Oh, and Duke. Or Mac. Anyway, they, they get wind of a message from a research base where there is a big breach and so they go through a bubble portal which is actually pretty i i thought it was actually a pretty cool take on like teleportation to this research base through space and then they spend the movie for the most part l- looking around for clues to what happened to the scientists who are either dead or like kind of crazy and then turn into zombies And it turns out there are these monsters running around in the base that are either former test subjects that they were testing something that I'll get into in just a hot minute, or are actually the scientist zombies. But the they found it's an archaeological site, and they found 
remnants of an ancient civilization who are all gone. They had a 20, they were humanoid, but they had a 24th chromosome, which we eventually determined to be synthetic and seems to be either gives you superpowers, like basically immortality, or turns you into a horrifying zombie monster slash demon thing. And towards the end of the movie, it is determined that According to the movie's logic, there are genetic markers for, like, psychopathy and, like, just kind of murderous intent tendencies. And if you have these, you turn into a horrifying monster. And if you do not, the monsters will just kill you because they don't want to give you superpowers. But then the movie has a bunch of emotional beats where characters get killed off, but not as quickly as you would expect and they actually care about them when they die. Eventually, everyone is dead. Sarge turns out to be kind of a really shitty guy who, once the quarantine is broken, goes and kills all of the people trying to escape who aren't... I mean, they kill a bunch of people who are zombies, but also he kills and tries to order people to kill the uninfected. And then there's a final showdown between Sarge and Reaper, and then the movie ends with Reaper and his sister being the only ones to escape. There is a sequence in there where Reaper goes on a zombie-killing spree where we have it in first-person camera, and it's actually done fairly well. And he just, like, kills a bunch of zombies for, like, ten minutes. Yeah. So I think the, the most interesting thing that the plot does in this movie is that it kind of has a protagonist twist, So you start the movie with Sarge and you think he's going to be your protagonist for the whole of the thing. But throughout it, more and more of the like actual emotional and narrative stuff depends on Reaper until Sarge becomes the villain and Reaper becomes the actual like protagonist of the Doom games, which is, I don't know, I didn't expect something that interesting narratively from (laughs) Doom. Yeah, that twist is definitely the most interesting part of this movie, and the part that I think works the most. I went into this assuming that The Rock was the lead, like the protagonist, because I'd never seen this movie before, and I didn't really hear much about it after it came out, because it was such a bomb that everybody just kind of forgot about it. But no, that actually does work really well, because The Rock is charming enough, and he doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, but he's like enough of a good guy protagonist at the beginning that you just kind of side with him naturally. So when he starts just indiscriminately shooting people because that's what he was ordered to do, it hits pretty hard. Yeah, this movie is surprisingly critical of military hierarchy. Yeah, they... (laughs) If yeah, if there's a if there's a central theme to this movie, it is that like blind loyalty is not actually a very good way to like move through the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just wondering how we want to move through this because I feel like we could talk about order of character deaths and talk about the characters individually. Yeah, talking about the characters seems to be our general mo. Uh... I think there are a couple more little plot points I want to get into. Uh, The uh, main character, or the main arc of the movie, as we discussed, is kind of going through the facility and figuring out what happened uh, with some, you know, genetic modification stuff on the side and tragic backstory for Reaper. And uh, I think it is highly benefited by the fact that 
the central group of people in this are not just survivors. They're like a military group going in specifically to do things. Like that is a beneficial starting point in that it, it helps move things along pretty effectively. This movie does have a lot in common with the first Resident Evil movie, and by proxy, a lot in common with Aliens. Aliens being the best version of this story. <laughs> but I think this is, honestly, I think this is a slightly better movie than Resident Evil. Oh, than the first yeah, one for definitely. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, also, quickly, all the effects are good in this movie. Yes. So we won't stop to complain about any of them. We'll rant, we'll like rave at the end, but let's start with characters. Uh, Sarge as we mentioned, is played by Dwayne, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, this is one of his earliest film roles, right? Uh, it's on the earlier side of his career. It was before The Rock went through this uh, this arc in his film career where he started being credited as The Rock, and then he changed his credit to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and then eventually he made his full metamorphosis into Dwayne Johnson. Uh, this was still the period where he was being billed as The Rock. So it's before he became a big star. This was kind of on the upswing. Yes, he is still, it is clear in the end, in this movie by the end that they hired him partially because he's a professional wrestler. Yeah. They they still feel the need to make him do hand-to-hand combat in this movie to justify why they hired him, even though he is doing a very good performance because he could actually act from the beginning of his career, he's just good at his job. <laughs> yeah, people were weirdly critical of Dwayne Johnson's acting in this movie, but I think he actually does pretty well. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the complaints about this character in the, at the time were just kind of covering over the fact that, one, they didn't respect him as an actor yet because of the wrestling and because he was like this kind of new face in the industry and this like weird giant ethnically ambiguous man that nobody really knew what to do with yet uh and two that the character he plays is a critique of american military leaders and americans especially in 2005 i don't think we're really into that yeah that is fair a lot, a lot anti-military of Americans messaging into that now. No, but especially in 2005, this is around the time period the Dixie Chicks lost their entire career for not supporting the president. Like, anti-American sentiments were not super appreciated in the early aughts. It was a time. Uh, and I, I would not be surprised if a little bit of that bled into people's general poor reception of Sarge in this film, who literally has the Marine <laughs> slogan tattooed on his back. Thoughts on Sarge? I mean, as in seeing Dwayne Johnson on film, I definitely prefer him in his more comedic roles, but like he does a good job in this movie. You kind of like him. He's like probably right for a fair bit of the movie until it's just like, oh, you've, you're you're just murder now okay good what if you what if you didn't though <laughs> yeah he does a very good job of convincing us he's an effective leader at the beginning and as the film goes on it becomes increasingly clear he is only as good a leader as people will listen to him and then he gets really really angry if people don't do exactly what he says at a moment's notice no matter how crazy the things he's getting them to do are yeah this movie, I, weirdly, we watched The Thing immediately after that. This movie also has things in common with The Thing. <laughs> yeah, it has a little bit of that paranoid thriller, nobody really knows who they can trust element to it because everybody's being picked off left and right by these 
mutants and nobody knows if everybody else is the the way that the mutation is transferred to other people is through uh, these these mutants shoot their tongues out <laughs> horrible it's really bad. and they latch onto people's necks and that is how they infect another person with the c24 so there's like moments of the movie where people will be separated for a short period of time and come back together and they won't really know immediately whether or not any of them have been gotten to by the mutants so it does have a little bit of that kind of 80s like paranoid thriller sci-fi horror to it this is what this movie does what residents evils liquors should have been (laughs) yeah so i think we've gotten as much out of sarge as we possibly can because he's not really he's mostly interesting in his role in the film and not so much as a character he is a pretty typical military leader type he has an appropriate amount of sympathy early on, which is like lost continuously as he goes on. You know, he's just like what you would expect from the guy leading a charge in this kind of action movie until he doesn't have the like, well, we need to do the right thing moment near the end that most movies grant these types of characters. Instead, he just keeps doing his job. Which, as he interprets it, is to murder everyone in the facility so that no one can escape. Because he's a real military man. At the beginning of the movie, we hear him getting his orders, and he repeats back each order to the person like okay i understand but he kind of drops out important key words like they they say if necessary like if necessary do what you need to do and he's just like by any means necessary understood and it's just like I, that, that's not quite what that meant that was like do uh, i don't know it, it seemed clear that like if you can rescue people you should but he's just like kill everyone gotcha <laughs> I was like, that's okay, that's Ameri- scary foreshadowing. Yeah, they don't they don't really hide that he is like strict military dude in the beginning of the movie, but you just don't really expect him to be quite so awful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the first clue we get that he's not necessarily the noble leader that he is pretending to be is that there's a point in the first chunk of the movie where they have discovered the mutants and are kind of holed up in the infirmary and they're having this conversation about how to proceed and uh reaper says that their job isn't to protect the like corporate secrets they should get everybody out of there while they can and then Sarge says that their orders are to, it included in like eliminating the threat, is that they need to recover UAC property. So he has not told them, but part of their job there is to find and protect corporate secrets. Yeah. At the, potentially at the expense of human life, which is implied. But he did not tell his people that, which implies that he kind of knows that they're not there for the right reasons and he's keeping it hidden intentionally. And he he's they watch a video of the research, the researchers like injecting a prisoner with C-24 and watching them turn into a horrifying monster. And he's like, I didn't see anything. We're not destroying the research. We're just going to take it home. And the scientist who's stuck in a wall right now, but who who's kind of alive, but is a weird zombie. And Sam, the the doctor, 
woman is like, you know, it could be reversible. And he's like, it is not reversible. Bam. Zombie mutant dead. It's not reversible. And we aren't going to take any new information in ever. It's like, yeah. This is his heel turn. This is the point where he stops being a character you trust. Yeah. And then the real turning point where he is absolutely gone and there is no redeeming him is when they get to... So the, the Mars facility is connected to this, the, the portal on Earth in the Nevada desert, and they go back through the portal to track down one of the mutants, and Sarge orders them to sanitize the whole facility, even though at this point they know that some of the people won't be infected, and the rookie finds a storeroom that has been locked down that is full of survivors. There's like 20 people in there, including children, and... He comes back to Sarge and says, like, tells him that he found them. And Sarge, without hesitation, asks him if he's, like, sanitized the wing, whether or not he's killed these people. And the kid's just like, well, no, they're people. And then Sarge just straight up shoots him in the head and says that the consequences for insubordination is execution yeah he is hardcore yeah and then off screen he does kill all of those people i'm glad that we don't have to see that yeah me too still Ah. all right uh we should move on to another character let's let's flush out the rest of the gang before we get to the main characters where the meat of the story is as we mentioned, we've got the kid. He is the rookie. That is essentially his entire role. At one point in time, he does drugs, and that is like a presented problem, but like doesn't end up really amounting to much. Uh, I think mostly he's just there. Like he is the most clearly laid out character for death at the very beginning of the movie. Like every single thing about him says, "Oh, this kid's gonna die." Yeah. So the fact that he makes it almost to the end of the movie, only to be shot by his commanding officer, really hits very hard. And like, yeah, he just looks like an eighteen-year-old guy who's just got into the military, and this is his first mission. Pretty typical character type, Nathan. Yeah, he's a pretty standard archetype for these kinds of movies. A lot of the time you see this character get killed off fairly early, either to up the stakes or because he makes some kind of mistake and this is like the movie is making him pay for it. Or he's motivation for the others. Or yeah, or he's motivation for the others. So they they kept him around a lot longer than I was expecting. So the the earliest ones that get killed are some of the veterans in the squad, but uh yeah, there isn't that much to his character. He, he He's there kind of as a foil to Sarge because Sarge is constantly telling him things like not to hesitate because if you hesitate, then people will, that's how people get killed. And if something's trying to kill you, then that's the enemy. Like these kinds of very simple, straightforward, like aim and shoot kind of, of nuggets of wisdom, which he constantly forgets about or fails to heed and still doesn't die, but gets killed by his commanding officer. Which is interesting. I think it's a subversion point because you're kind of programmed by a bunch of other movies to see Sarge as like a wise mentor and Kid as somebody who needs to learn these lessons. But Kid doesn't learn the lessons and he's fine. And in the end, that's it's because he shouldn't learn the lessons because his mentor's a crazy man. Yeah, he's, he actually, when he gets shot for not killing the room full of people, he actually makes a point of standing up to Sarge and like he very clearly says, 
no. And they have a standoff for a while. And that mm-hmm. that's when he gets shot in the neck. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a like pretty impactful moment. Honestly, it yeah. works quite well. Not necessarily because of the strength of either of the characters, but because of the effectiveness of the tropes that they are built off of, and this kind of change in the structure that you expect. He is too. The the other thing that Sarge says after he kills him is that he only needs soldiers and. It seems very biting to me that this movie essentially says, in order to be a soldier as we understand it, you have to have no empathy. Yeah. And the movie kind of rejects that as a premise. Yeah, most of the um, characters do. Yeah, because the characters that are are good, that we like, are empathetic and try to value human life and are determined to like help one another. It's only Sarge who thinks that that is inherently a flaw. Uh, talking about the rest of the cast, what is the next team member we want to discuss? Mm, I like Duke a lot. I also like Duke. Duke is one of my favorites. Yeah, Duke is pretty good. Uh, Duke is played by Raz Adati, uh, Gregory Duke Schofield, and he is one of two Marines who it sounds like drew up together, him and Destroyer, who... Uh, all of the Marines, to some degree or another, appear to be kind of orphans, and the squad is kind of the extent of their family at this point. But that's really emphasized with these two. Um, but yeah, Duke has Duke spends most of the movie uh, protecting the scientist, uh, Doctor Samantha Grimm, Reaper's sister. They have a couple conversations about this that gives the character a little bit more sympathy than some of the other squad mates. He's also allowed to be like funny and charming yeah. in ways that a lot of the others don't have opportunities for. He flirts with yeah. Sam a fair bit throughout the movie, in and it's really awkward and kind of like it's awkwardly aggressive in a kind of charming way because it actually kind of works and i i mean it it's it's definitely like uh if you weren't as cute as you are this would be gross but i don't know it it worked it seems i think it largely it largely works i think and some of the things he says are pretty gross, but it largely works because, one, he's not being as entirely straightforwardly serious as some of the other characters would be with these gestures. Yeah. He's, like, flirting in that way that, like, you kind of play at things and they don't necessarily, you don't expect them to be taken at face value necessarily. Yeah. And, she- and also Sam just can hold her own. Yeah. She is treating Sam as a person and she is playing back at him and she can do that quite easily. She is not intimidated by him on any level. Yeah, she actually makes fun of him. It's like, you're pretty rusty, aren't you? He's like, yeah, I really am. Uh, And it's cute. Their relationship is kind of cute in the sense that like, I don't know if I want them to be together as a couple or anything, but I like they have a rapport and they clearly are like getting invested in each other on some level, Mm -hmm. which is nice. I actually really expected him to make it through the movie because he seemed like top billing for that spot. Yeah, like he survives for a really long time. He his death is actually the only one that isn't meaningful, Mm -hmm. which I was really surprised by because it was a waste. They built up all of this emotional tension. And then it's like, oh, he's now suddenly shredded through a vent while simultaneously Sarge gets dragged away. 
Like, what? Everyone else got a meaningful death. Yeah, it does feel like they maybe had one or two too many characters in this movie to do the things they were trying to do, which is a shame because we're actually, like, this movie is mostly pretty good. (laughs) I keep saying this. I think three or four times throughout this movie, I was just looking at Nathan. I was like, this is actually competent. Like, so far, this movie hasn't lost me, and it never really did. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it just kind of picks up the further you go through it. There's a lot of sort of dead space in the first act where they cut the script down a lot to get a lower budget for this movie. So I I imagine there are a number of scenes from the first act that just got chopped out entirely, leading to a lot of kind of dead space where they're just wandering through dark hallways with guns. Uh, But yeah, overall, it really holds together. Yeah, uh, Duke's death is kind of disappointing because he is, of the squad mates, one of the characters we spend the most time with who has the most to do, at least emotionally, in the movie. But yeah, he dies just kind of cannon fodder style like a number of the other squad mates, and that is kind of disappointing. Oh, the other nice thing about Duke is that he's allowed to have human fears. He has, like, uh, he's a bit squicked out by the uh, nano walls, which are walls in the facility that I guess they can restructure the molecules or whatever to turn them from solid walls into like passable spaces and then turn the walls back on. It's pretty cool. Which is yeah, a neat technology, a reasonable thing to be kind of freaked out by because as we mentioned earlier, somebody does get stuck in one of those walls later. I expected somebody to get cut in half by one of yeah. them, but it's actually much more interesting what they do with it because they trap one of the zombies in the wall. And then later they have trouble turning off one of the walls because they're shooting through it and it just can't do both at the same time, which is really interesting. They use these walls in a really fascinating way. Uh, Let's talk about Destroyer quickly because that's his pseudo brother. Destroyer doesn't have a lot of character. It is pretty strongly implied that he is like kind of uh, Sarge's like right hand man. I think is his most defining characteristic. He is tough and strong and the like, one of the more like- He carries a big minigun. Carries a big (laughs) minigun. Yeah, he's one of the like strong silent types. I apologize in advance for butchering this name, but he is played by Diobia Operier as Rourke Destroyer Ganon. It's a great freaking name. Both of them, both his character name and his real name are great. Mm. We don't get a lot from him, but- he does seem to be like he has humanity and he he seems to be an empathetic person even though he's like good at being the stoic strong man who can kill zombies but he gets freaked out by a a monkey in a event at one point which un- understandable it was really dark up there this movie does a lot of jump scares very well but with really yeah. mundane payoffs for most of it which i liked I like the monkey jump scare. It is this is uh one of a few different movies I've seen with monkey jump scares and monkey jump scares are usually pretty effective. Where do you rate this? Is this better or worse than the one in Ad Astra? I think Ad Astra wins the monkey jump scare because you're just not expecting a monkey in an actual space station whereas you've already seen the monkey in this movie so you know there's a monkey. Mm-hmm. Um luckily the monkey doesn't get like turned into a horrible monster it just gets unfortunately shot which sucks but like nothing was getting out of this movie <laughs> yeah. yeah it it's it's, it's, destroyer. Impl- it's implied that the monkey was turning because they some of its blood drips down and it's got the weird black pellets in it so oh yeah the the monkey was was turning so it was a mercy killing of, of i think it was a capuchin that sounds about right uh, Nathan, you're going to say something about Destroyer. Uh, Destroyer ends up trapped in a containment cell with one of the big burly mutants and has to like 
fight him in hand-to-hand combat by swinging a monitor on a cord around to try and like fight this thing off and he gets electrocuted by the walls of the cell but that's not even yeah. how he dies he though is... like he does really well he almost wins he oh yeah he holds his own for a while in that fight he ends up it's probably one of the coolest sequences actually is he he does a really good job and he's really awesome and you're super rooting for him yeah he ends up after like he gets beat the heck up by this horrible demon thing and then he beats up the demon thing shoves it against the wall with a pipe that's electrified starts to climb out of the pit and then it frees itself and then just pulls him back down and when he hits the ground he just dies which for what was going on in that scene and how he had already fallen into the pit once before I was kind of surprised that his death just kind of happened like that because I didn't really understand how he died like he already fell into the pit before so now for him to die the second time I don't know but it was he did really hold his own yeah he did a very good job I think he was one of the more interesting fights. To move on again, we should bring up quickly uh, Mac, who is the least developed uh, of the members. Mac is the Asian member of the squad who is initially put on point to protect the entrance to the teleporter. And that's about it. Yeah. The only thing of note with him is that the reason his nickname is Mac is because apparently nobody can pronounce his actual name, which I don't remember the whole of it because it is only said once. But his last name is Takeshi, which is not hard to pronounce. Like if you're Taka- pulling Takahashi. Takahashi. Oh, that's so much harder. Takahashi <laughs> is not hard to say. Like if we're going for Asian last names that are hard to pronounce, like, come on, you can find something harder than that. Everybody in the crew should be able to say Takahashi. Yeah, you actually <laughs> caught far more about that than I did because literally as I missed all of that because as far yeah. as I could tell, he was just a guy set to protect the entrance and then when he gets called in to help he just gets his head removed and it's just like oh he's dead now okay he he gives some grenades and a gun to the guy who is in front of the door and is like okay you can handle this and the guy at the door is like no i can't handle this and he just leaves i'm not a soldier yeah i am a scientist Max seems like he was a perfectly nice guy. He has almost nothing to do with this movie, and it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. He is one of the aforementioned cannon fodder uh, squad mates. Yeah. Less cannon foddery would be... Portman. The anti-Ron. Yes. (laughs) Yes, the anti-Ron. So we've had a few movies on this podcast where the movie is bad, and there's like one character that we love unreasonably in it because they are just like a shining light of something. This movie has the opposite of that because Portman sucks so hard throughout the entirety of this movie. He's the worst. Uh, And he doesn't even get a particularly satisfying death. He just sucks. eh, I I think he gets the death he deserves. Yeah. I wanted him to get fucked up on the toilet, but like that's just me. Yeah, Richard Brake plays uh, Dean Portman. We are introduced to this character. We're introduced to the whole squad when they are waiting to get relieved to go on leave, and they're talking about what they're going to do when they get back to civilization. And his introduction is talking about how he wants to get a hotel room and hire a couple of trans prostitutes and just like 
go crazy for the weekend. But he phrases it in a way that is definitely transphobic. It's, it's really not okay. I, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, he, he's, he's gross. He's fetishizing trans people and using really awful terminology. And I was like, okay, yeah. you're the worst. Thanks. Bye. He is. He starts there, and he does not get better. Yeah, he is. And I don't think the movie wants us to find him charming. No, because like there is a character type in these like military squad movies of the gross but lovable like jokester type. Like uh, in Final Fantasy, the spirits within Steve Buscemi's character has has that going for him. But Portman's just gross. He is not lovable. Everybody hates him. Everybody on the crew thinks he's trash, uh, except for Kid, who doesn't know any better. And he only likes him because he has drugs. Yeah. I think this is. I think this is probably noteworthy that he is the only one who doesn't have a nickname. Yeah, he's the only <laughs> one with no call sign. Everyone just calls him Portman because he's the worst. And the moments I like other characters the most sometimes are when they call Portman out on being a stupid piece of shit. <laughs> he is gross. He takes every opportunity he can to be a jerk to his like fellow teammates and to any women he has. The, the misfortune, misfortune of, of meeting. Into. He's just the worst. Yeah. Uh, and he is like slimy and he's gross looking intentionally and I just hate Portman. Eventually he dies. He gets... And that's nice. He leaves Destroyer to go to the bathroom supposedly, but he ends up calling, in, tries to call in backup, even though they kind of already are the backup. This is kind of what leads to Destroyer being killed because they've been separated. Uh, and then he ends up just getting smashed into the walls of a bathroom stall until he's dead. It's like, okay, I, nobody deserves this death, but like if anyone was going to get it, it, it's you. Yeah, Portman <laughs> sucks. We could all agree. Yeah. The the only real interesting thing about Portman's character is that he's a coward, but he's kind of right. That he, like, everybody knows that they're not, probably not getting out of there alive, but everyone seems willing to give up their way home in order to keep the mutants from getting to Earth. But Portman is the only one who's like, this is crazy. We should call somebody and like goes out of his way to try and like get somebody to come up there and help them. Yeah. And it's it's an understandable desire and like you kind of get why he's doing what he's doing, but he's also putting everybody's lives even further at risk and like everybody on earth as well just so that he has a chance of surviving. Yeah, he's he's shitty. Um Yeah. And goat. We're not supposed to like him, but I also don't think he's necessary. Uh, yes, goat. Goat is a character that is more theoretically interesting than he is actually interesting because he dies really early. He's like the first of yeah. the soldiers to it's, bite it. It's yeah. goat and but then Mac. Ben, ben Daniels. Yeah. So goat is. There's actually a pretty big gap between the first two soldier deaths. Yes. But uh, goat is the religious old man. He is a pretty good. A uh, mentor figure, a bit strict, uh, has his own definite set of morals. Uh, the problem being that when he is the first person to see the monsters, unfortunately, because he is the like only one who has deep religion, everybody assumes that he's just like lost it and that this isn't like a real threat. That's the extent of how his character is really used. He criticizes kid for taking drugs. He I think. makes a point of he at one point 
uh, self-harms because he took God's oh, right. name in vain, which is just like, oh boy. Yeah, that is yeah. the craziest thing that and, I think happens in this movie, honestly. Yeah, and honestly, this felt like a really stupid thing to do. Because if you're hunting monsters, they can probably smell blood. I Yeah, that's a fair point. This movie kind of goes out of his way in a way that I think is actually pretty interesting to give all of the characters some level of baggage, with the exception of Mike, because Mike is, or Mac, to the point where I don't even get his name right. Yeah, Mac, Mac just doesn't have relevant. enough time. The extent of his damage is that people are kind of racist to him, which is fair, but like he doesn't get that expanded on very much. But Goat's damage is by far the most weird and messed up, because yeah, he is into ritual scarification when he sins. Yeah, it's it's a it's a choice. It is a bold choice, and I don't know if it really goes anywhere. Like you were saying, the the most interesting thing about Goat's death is that he's he gets infected, and they take him back to the infirmary. And this is when they start like really locking down the facility and getting all of the civilians to evacuate back to Earth. And he just starts babbling about how he was attacked by a devil and everyone's like, oh, poor goat, he's gone crazy. It's like, well, well no, actually, that was kind of true. Is 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 he the one where they try really hard to keep him alive on the operating table? Yes. Yes. Yeah. He is their first death. It is Everybody's really sad about, about yeah. Goat's death and because it seemed avoidable and they weren't expecting casualties on this mission. They tried really hard to save their squad member, which a lot of these movies you don't really see. We get like mm-hmm. three minutes or so of them just trying to save his life with a defibrillator and adrenaline. And normally you see cannon, you see squad mates just being cannon fodder. It's like, they, they're trying. We care that he died because they tried. Yeah, I, I like that they all do seem very invested in trying to keep people alive in this movie. And a sign of, of how bad things are going is when people stop trying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, his that's not even necessarily his most interesting death because it's his second death that really hits home because he gets his body gets moved into like an observation room because it's somewhere to put it and he ends up resurrecting slowly turning into the weird zombie mutant but he kind of recognizes that he's is doing so crosses himself and finds a way to kill himself before he transforms in yeah it's like it's really brutal i'm not sure i want to describe it Uh. he essentially hits himself on the head on the glass in front of him enough to kill himself which is it's a lot to watch but yeah he does a noble self-sacrifice after already being turned into a monster which is i think interesting especially in how it plays with the before mentioned themes of like there being a kind of inborn genetic quality to this that like i mean yeah even if you've got this quality that doesn't actually mean you have to be a monster you could do this right you could you could not but some people are going to Uh, we haven't talked about reaper or dr grim or pinky yeah pinky we should mention pinky pinky has a cool motor or cool wheelchair has a really cool wheelchair in that at some point he lost his legs going through the bubble portal and by lost i mean actually lost uh like somewhere else on a different planet because they miscalculated but now he has a wheelchair directly attached to his spine 
It's kind of yeah. like a segue. It's neat design. I think if they were going to use this kind of technology, they might make something that can do stairs, but it's still neat. Yeah. He's the guy who is on watch for the door. He's got a cool wheelchair. He's a bit of a coward, but just in the sense that like he didn't sign up for any of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He he is supposed to, if one of the mutants breaks into the portal room, he is supposed to throw a grenade and destroy the portal before the mutants can get back. Back to Earth. But he doesn't, and as soon as one of them starts to break in, he goes through the portal himself. Yeah, but I can't really blame the guy. He wasn't prepped for this. Yeah. He's a door guy at the end of the day. He's the receptionist. Yeah, basically. I wouldn't be prepared if a zombie came into the facility I'm the receptionist at. I would probably dart. He has definite self-preservation instincts because later when they're back on the Earth facility, he is being threatened by Sarge because Sarge is ready to just kill everyone. And he pulls out his pistol and like faces Sarge down and he's like, I'm not going to die being shot by a crazy man. And then he he immediately gets ganked by a monster from behind. Turning him into one of the more interesting looking monsters because Mm -hmm. as we mentioned, the wheelchair is fused to his spine. So even as a monster, he's got a wheelchair. Um, He's like a weird pig demon with wheels. Have you ever seen a dog wheelchair? It looks like a dog wheelchair. But attached to a demon. It does resemble a dog wheelchair. But attached to like a giant evil naked roll rat. Mm. (laughs) It takes a while to to put down Pinky when he's turned into a monster too. Uh, Yeah, he actually kills Reaper. I mean, in the way that video game deaths go. Because he comes back. Yeah, he he t- he na- knocks him out for a bit. Uh, Pinky is a legitimate threat when he's turned into a naked mole rat. He's a mini boss. Uh, he's a mini boss. <laughs> the scientists. I also want to go over quickly before we get into uh, the main characters. Not that they have much in the way of character, but I feel like fleshing out that as part of the plot stuff would be helpful. Because it's not just goat who they have in the lab initially they have the only scientist they found alive who ripped off his own ear horribly the second they found him yes this is robert russell as dr todd carmack who i believe is named for one of the original creators of doom jonathan carmack uh he's also one of the scientists responsible for everything going on here so not a great dude but it's still wild to watch a man rip his own ear off yeah. He eventually disappears from the lab, which causes some panic and comes back as the monster that gets trapped in the wall. One of the other scientists shows up as a naked lady for a little while. Yeah. Uh, and we then she gets murdered. We do have zombie tits in this movie. It's unfortunate there's only like two female characters in this movie, and that's one of them. There are like some passing women in, I guess there's a couple other yeah. passing between then. Yeah, there's also the scientist that helps Sam out for a while before the evacuation, whose husband is one of the missing scientists that they're going to look for, who they end up discovering is the first mutant that they kill because when they do the autopsy on the body they find out that his appendix has been removed yeah she unfortunately gets uh she's one of the survivors in the storeroom at the end who gets killed by sarge yeah um i think her character mostly exists 
just so that that scene has a little bit more impact because we she's know like, someone in there. Yeah, she's given a little bit to do. We care about her. We know she has a kid. We know that she just lost her husband. Like she's already having a really bad day. Uh, and then she gets horribly <laughs> murdered by Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And that's about it for the scientists. The other ones are all monsters by the time we get there. Um, or Steve just is her husband. Or corpses. Yeah. The main characters now. Do we want to talk about Sam or Reaper? I mean, we can kind of talk about both of them as it relates to their parents and then talk about them individually. So yeah, one of the things about this movie that I did deeply appreciate is the central emotional conflict of the movie is based around a a man estranged from a woman and they didn't make it his ex-wife or his girlfriend. They are siblings. The core relationship (laughs) in this movie is a sibling relationship and that is just different enough to be really appealing and there's like something very nice about that that we don't have to deal with it being like romance on top of everything else yeah they make a couple of the characters at the beginning of the movie are like did you i think duke uh is the one don't tell me you let that like amazing piece of tail or something get away from you and he's like she's my sister and he's like oh uh (laughs) is she single is she single yeah Yeah. but like it's just uh uh, yeah it's like oh i'm just shoved my foot down into my stomach (laughs) okay but it's it's nice that that's because at the beginning of the movie you know he's got some kind of baggage Reaper has some kind of baggage with the facility that they're going to because Sarge basically tells him he doesn't have to come because he's got too much baggage, but he decides to come anyways. And when we get there, it turns out, oh, it's this lady scientist. And then it's like, oh, okay, it's actually specifically his sister. And the reason that they have a complicated relationship is that when they were younger, their parents were archaeologists on this dig site in Mars and they died tragically. I think partially because of some accident that Reaper feels like he caused, but I don't think was probably actually his fault. I I had some sense that maybe it was one of the, like the plot of the Doom games. Like maybe monsters came through a portal. It's unclear. At the end of the day, Reaper feels like this place is inherently bad and dangerous, literally a hell. And his sister decides to follow in his parents' footsteps and become a scientist, which he was apparently pretty clearly on track to do, but he left and became a Marine instead. And lied to her and said that he got a desk job. Yeah. So they have a have a strained relationship because of this shared trauma and the different ways that they dealt with it and the fact that they both kind of disapprove of each other's choices in life. Sam really clearly doesn't think, I mean, she thinks he's too good for the military, essentially, and Reaper thinks that she is purposefully putting herself in a dangerous situation. So they both kind of think they're putting each other in purposefully dangerous situations, but they're both being stupid about it because they're siblings and that makes sense. I want to bring this up quickly because I didn't mention it before and I wanted to with Goat calling the monsters demon and Reaper calling this place a hell. Instead of actually making it a portal to hell, they're trying repeatedly to lean on the idea that it's a metaphorical hell. And I don't know if they needed to do that. Yeah. It might have been better if they just dropped it. Because I kept expecting eventually there to be an actual hell portal. And there just isn't. And I'd rather you not get my hopes up. <laughs> yeah. I have to imagine that this change is what made most of the Doom fans angry at this movie 
and probably a big part of why it bombed as hard as it did. Because I don't know that general audiences cared all that much about it, and then the fans of the games felt like slighted by the fact that they made this major change to the lore when they adapted it. But like, I, I think it works for the story that they're telling works well enough on its own that I don't necessarily care, although I am mildly disappointed that we were robbed of seeing Carl Urban like machine gunning his way through demons in literal hell. At the very least, you think they could have done a sequel bait like in the bottom of the archaeological site, there's a portal to hell. Yeah, but instead it's just like, nope, we blew it up. It's fine. Nope. We blew it up. The archaeological site has what used to be like a civilization on Mars, I think, is the idea with these humanoids with a mutated 24th chromosome. And it is kind of implied that that's where humans came from, that the ones that weren't mutated escaped to Earth, which is a lot and not really addressed. It's not really addressed. Yeah, that comes and goes very quickly. But it is a trope in media that like oh humans came from mars and it's also like a half theory that life came from mars to earth in science circles yeah the actual idea of microbial life coming from mars or somewhere else in space initially and landing on earth to seed it is not actually an absurd scientific concept uh the idea that there was a highly advanced civilization of humans on mars that just yeeted themselves (laughs) out and we don't know about that is a little bit more far-fetched Mm. It's a little Battlestar Galactica. Um, this movie pulls from a lot of different uh, tropey sci-fi places, but it, it combines it in a way that's pretty nice. It doesn't feel like a straight knockoff of anything. It's got a little bit of the Stargates and a little bit of the effects of masses and a little bit of the Battlestars Galactic. It's got a little <laughs> bit of the aliens. Got a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the rock. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, is there anything else we want to talk about with Sam and Reaper? Or I, mean, I think we should discuss them a little bit more as characters. Uh, yeah. Sam is, as I mentioned, a little bit. She's a very competent scientist. She's intelligent. She's able to hold her own against these military guys, uh, except when she's being like directly threatened, which is fair. Yeah. And she's got faith in her brother, even if she doesn't agree with everything he's ever done. Uh, and she has more empathy than anyone else in the movie, probably, besides Reaper by the end of it. I quite like her. Uh, and at one point in time, she tells a like, grown-ass Marie not to be a wuss, and I kind of appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, and she just she has a she has Duke hold open the mouth of one of these mutated zombie demons and because she dropped a tool inside it and then she has to reach her entire arm down into it and it's like, "Okay, where did it go? This I, I kept expecting it to wake up and bite her arm off, but it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> she uh, actually doesn't die, which is nice. She's one of the two survivors. Uh, her relationship with Duke is a really highlight of the film's like banter, even if Duke does get an unceremonious death at the end of the movie. I like Sam, and I actually pretty much believe the relationship between her and her brother, because siblings don't like each other most of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about, uh, yeah, I think you guys covered pretty much everything. She's a good character, I like her. Reaper is starts the movie as generic military guy with unknown baggage. Uh, he does that thing where he stares out a window and hears, like, the haunting memories of his past. Uh, and he's played by Carl Urban, who is like a kind of perfect for that character role, uh, but also a genuinely good actor, so capable of bringing more to it when more is 
expected over the length of the film. He is protective of his sister. He has a moral center, unlike the actual leader of the of uh, the military group they're in. He wanted to come to do this to help, even though he could have just gotten out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he's a good central character. In the end of it, he becomes the actual Doom Slayer because he gets injected with the virus and doesn't become, sorry, not virus, chromosome. Yeah. Whatever, all these movies have the same trick in them. <laughs> and doesn't become a monster. He becomes a super-powered Doom Slayer with mega-cool jumps and backflip tricks. Where the movie gets into what I think is the coolest section, and I think that's where we should, which what we should talk about next. Yes, absolutely. So they, what, what happened? How this starts is he's bleeding out, and Sam Grimm has taken some of the chromosome twenty-four serum, and to save his life, she is con- she is certain that he won't turn into a monster because she knows him as like an empathetic person. Injects him with it, leaves probably to like run from a monster and then he wakes up and we get this in first person this is the first time we get first person view in the movie and we see him get up we see him look in a look himself over in a mirror where all of his cuts are have healed he just like wipes the blood of them off and the camera is moving with his reflection this was a really cool effect i i was just like how did you do this it it, is what how i what and then he we see him pick up a gun and then for the next 10 minutes it's him doing basic what feels like an on-rails shooter it really captures the feeling of an on-rails shooter even though that's not what doom is but it because it's a movie we're not actually controlling him but it catches it gets the the rhythm of having to reload when it's like oh there's a big monster in front of me but i don't have any more ammo and then there was a moment that i really appreciated where he's like shooting uh demons and zombies on all sides and then he whips to this he like catches something out of the corner of his eye and shoots his own reflection in like a mirrored surface and it's like same buddy i've done that <laughs> It's it's a really good sequence, and I was not expecting the movie to do something this interesting. But it's actually one of the most effective first person like fight like extended fight sequences I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I've seen entire movies try to do this trick before, which we're gonna have to watch Hardcore Henry at some point in time. But <clears throat> I'm not looking forward to it. But yeah, it does a really good job. It really looks like Doom for a little while, and it stays about as long as you want it to. And any longer might have been a bit exhausting Mm -hmm. but i think they they do a good job figuring out exactly how long you want to watch it he gets through the facility and gets back to earth and that's kind of where the movie goes back to normal uh so that he can have his final boss conflict with Dwayne the rock johnson who is turning into a monster but has stayed mostly human this Uh, is this is on earth this is on earth yeah this whole thing oh he's a bit on earth the whole time never mind and he's he's going through the facility and trying to track down Dwayne the rock johnson and you know protect his sister all that's good good stuff he does a bunch of zombie murders. It's good. It's a really entertaining sequence. Yeah. He blows up a zombie with yeah, a, a... a mine. He jumps over a zombie. That camera motion was a little weird, but if it was in a video game, I'd buy it. A zombie rushes him holding a fire axe and he shoots the handle of the axe so the blade falls into the zombie's head and kills it. Yeah, that <laughs> yes, cool. that's a good moment. Like, the, the, the choreography and the cinematography of this sequence are really good. And there are people that like to bag on this sequence on the internet. 
I've come across a lot of like doom purists who have lots of opinions about this movie and like ports of the games and how they they aren't good enough. But like this sequence is great. It's like fast paced. It captures the tone of the games. The effects look great even now. Like this was a 15 year old movie and it still looks pretty good. Yeah, it's just like a solid adrenaline pumping action scene that lasts just as long as you want because this kind of thing is hard to sustain. Hence why Hardcore Henry doesn't work. <laughs> um, there's a lot of reasons why that movie doesn't work. We'll get to it when we talk about that movie. Uh, but I think that's kind of the bulk of what Doom has to offer. Uh, there's a final fight scene between Carl Urban and Dwayne The Rock Johnson where they get rid of their guns for really no reason just so that they can do a cool hand-to-hand combat fight. Look, they run out of ammo. Yeah, they're both uh, very they, low on ammo. They, they have a showdown where like, they, they run into each other in this hallway and they ask one another how much ammo they have left and uh, The Rock has this... He, he has uh, acquired the BFG which is uh, a reference to the game's the big fucking gun. (laughs) And Reaper has his assault rifle, and he's like, how much ammo do you have? And Reaper says he has about half a clip. And then uh, Sarge says he has one shot. So they have this standoff, and Sarge fires the BFG, and Reaper dodges out of the way and like fires off his half a clip, and then they chase each other into this big central room. I think it's the portal room. Mm -hmm. And they're out of ammo, so they have to fight hand-to-hand. And this is a pretty good fight scene, too. I was on board. They are just beating the shit out of each other, and Sarge is slowly transforming over the course of the sequence, so he keeps getting stronger and more unhinged. They end up on the balcony, and... Reaper is trying to pin Sarge down with the railing of the balcony, but Sarge is like transforming, so he like rips himself off of it and he bends the uh railing around his arm like Muay Thai like boxing ropes and starts just like beating him. <laughs> and then eventually this ends when uh Reaper activates the portal and shoves Sarge through it and tosses a grenade, blowing up the portal on the Mars base and basically saving the world. Uh, Yeah, it's a good fight. I like it. I think The Rock does a really solid job of selling this like mid-battle transformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I like it. It's exciting. It's a pretty fun little way to end the movie. Um, anything else specific you guys want to talk about before we get into like the fun facts and friendship zone? I think we should just, do we want to talk about how, like, they did monsters really well in this movie. We've talked about on the show where they'll, like, show their monsters too early or too easily and and in light. In this movie, until the end of the movie, the monsters are just, like, tiny glimpses in the darkness and, like, sounds. Or corpses. Or corpses. Well, okay, the corpses were kind of later, but, like, the actual... The like mutants that are picking people off, we don't see them very much on, for like no, the first half get... of the movie, and it's really good because they. I I know you mentioned how the first half like chunk of the movie felt kind of dead, but I actually liked it because it it felt suspenseful, and they weren't just shooting zombies, and that I felt that was nice. 
Oh yeah, I, I mean more that there are a lot of opportunities to have fleshed out some of the characters more and given mm. them a little bit more to do. And for the most part, they are just wandering through hallways. Yeah. Yeah. The I, I don't mind that they held off on showing the actual monsters for that long. I think that's a, a good choice. I think the monsters also get pretty cool introductions. It was this movie, right, where... You see a pair of eyes yes. Yes. in the darkness, and then another pair of eyes, and a horrible monster comes out. It's one of the coolest monster introductions I've seen in a while. It's really good. Yeah, the first time you see one of the monsters straight on is they have tracked one of them down into the sewer system of the base. There's these big sewer tunnels that run under the facility. And they're walking through the darkness with their flashlights on their guns. And Goat is spooked by something and he like spins around and his flashlight goes out. Uh, so he's trying to get it back on and he sees this pair of eyes in the darkness. And then, yeah, like two extra pairs flip open and it lunges at him, which is pretty great. Yeah. That shot is, is really good. Uh, I liked the Foley work. I felt like the very quiet doom rock music in the background of most scenes was a little unnecessary. Made it, it felt a little cheesy, but most of the Foley work I thought was okay. This is good. This is nice. It it was it was very atmospheric. It it wasn't necessarily diegetic, but it was. It did contribute. Yeah, it didn't. It certainly wasn't whipping noises like <laughs> we've gotten used to on this show. This is a competent action film. I think if people weren't so up their arses about freaking consistency with a video game, this movie would have a lot more fans than it does. Because uh, it's it's fine. It's pretty good, actually. Yeah. It's, it's one of the better movies on this show. Yeah. And I'm not even joking about that. It is one of the better movies we've watched on this program. Uh, Nathan, do we have any facts that are fun or are all of the facts not fun? We do have some fun facts. Let's start with some casting information. Uh, do you guys want to guess? So um, the development of this movie started pretty much right after Doom 2 came out and proved that the franchise was sustainable as a big like blockbuster game franchise. Uh, but they didn't get it off the ground for a number of reasons. There were lots of licensing problems, like Universal had the rights, and then they didn't make a movie in time, so Universal, so Warner Brothers got them, and then they didn't end up making something, so the producers like got the rights back to Universal, and they eventually got it off the ground. But in the mid-90s, who do you think they approached to play the Doom Slayer? Hmm. Keanu Reeves. No, but that would be kind of great. I mean, that's basically John Wick. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about who has, who has action Schwarzenegger. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh. The, of course. The first choice that the producers had was Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Doom Slayer. Uh, unfortunately, the development took so long that by the time they were ready to enter production on it, he was already governor of California and too old to play the Doom Slayer. <laughs> so. Um, they offered, they, they supposedly offered it to Vin Diesel, although I couldn't find an actual source for that. Um, but he turned it down. Uh, so then they offered the role to Dwayne Johnson, uh, who read the script and read, f like auditioned for, for, uh, Reaper, but decided 
that he actually wanted to play Sarge because he felt like Sarge was the like darker and more complicated character and that drew him to Sarge so he decided to like do another audition for Sarge hmm. and they gave him that role so then they went to their next choice which was Carl Urban uh Can you imagine this totally movie works. if those roles were swapped it would not work <laughs> huh. I don't know I mean I think I think Dwayne Johnson could absolutely be the doom slayer i don't know because the reaper in this movie feels like you kind of need him to be unassuming or else the twist doesn't work yeah i mean maybe maybe for this particular version of the story it wouldn't have worked as well but i mean this movie specifically as the yeah, yeah, that's fair. the doom slayer yeah doing the rock, rock johnson could kill plenty of dooms he is <laughs> a, a capable doom guy but but i like how they how it ended up I do yeah. think it's interesting that he intentionally chose Char- Sarge, though, that yeah. that was not, like, really the intention of the filmmakers, because I was kind of giving the filmmakers credit for how interesting this is, but it sounds like it was more a uh, happenstance of who they got in each role. This is a less fun fact. One of the reasons that they didn't get this movie in, devel- in production sooner was because the Columbine massacre happened. Oh, yeah. And there was a big media frenzy about how the one of the shooters was a fan of the doom games Mm. and there there was that brief period where a lot of politicians and parents were trying to get violent video games banned because they saw this as one of the reasons behind the shooting ignoring the fact that they were both white supremacists yeah uh which is maybe more important if we're talking about the reasons for the Columbine shooting. Wait, they were? I wasn't actually aware of that part. Yeah, people that talk about it, they were attempting to commit their crimes on the, like, anniversary of Timothy McVeigh's, like, terrorist attacks. They were pretty intentionally trying to be terrorists. They weren't inspired by video games. They were inspired by, you know, acts of far-right terrorism. Gotcha. Yeah, so that delayed things quite a bit in development. Eventually, only in like 2004, they finally got a director and writer on board. Uh, The original director was Enda McCallion, who was a kind of up-and-coming Irish director who they had hired to do it, and they had David Callaham as the screenwriter, who did... Most of the writing work for this, it was punched up by another writer later who's also credited. Uh, but most of the story, I think, is from Callahan's uh, draft. In his version, there was more monsters. They had some of the other like, iconic designs from the games were included in the script. So the Cacodemon and the Archvile and a bunch of other things. But the studio wanted to keep the budget low, so they had them axe a bunch of those elements from the script and cut a bunch of scenes down uh but later in 2004 uh mccallion dropped out and they decided to bring on another like pretty new kind of unknown director he was uh i think a cinematographer before but and again i apologize for butchering this name but andres bartkowiak uh came on to direct it they approached edgar wright and simon Pegg to punch up the script but they just turned them down (laughs) Aw, that would have been fun. So instead, they hired Wesley Strick, uh, another writer, to do some rewrites and punch it up. Uh, And Strick, actually, I I found an interview with um, 
an article about this movie on denofgeek.com where they did some interviews with a number of the people involved and they talked to Wesley Strick about this and it sounds like the reason he decided to take the job was because his kids were big into Doom and they seemed really excited about him doing a video game movie so he, he did it basically because he wanted to make them happy. Uh, but he did seem to get really into uh, like doing right by the fans of the games and wanted to wanted to do things like he did a full rewrite of the script where he consulted a like marine training officer to get like all the military stuff right and had them doing like proper procedures throughout the movie uh but the producers thought that was boring so they had to change it back he also wanted to keep uh, a lot of the other the like iconic elements from the games but again they had the 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 company kept telling them to like cut things down for budget and for time eventually this movie was made for somewhere between like 60 and 70 million which i think even in 2005 is not that big a budget for a major blockbuster like this and yeah it only made like something like 50.8 million at the box office which is just just not enough to justify continuing as a franchise the the creature effects uh, were the the all the physical and makeup effects were done by Stan Winston Studios. Oh my gosh, Stan Winston! <laughs> For those who don't know, Stan Winston did all of the dinosaur effects in Jurassic Park. Oh, gotcha. So he's like, this good. is top tier <laughs> practical effect people we're talking about, which explains why it looks so good throughout the, most of this movie. Yeah, I, I talked about Paul Jones in the Resident Evil Apocalypse episode. Stan Winston is like on the same level, but has his own studio in the States. Uh, yeah, he's done work for Terminator, for Jurassic Park, for Aliens, for Predator. He even did stuff for Inspector Gadget, uh, Iron Man, Edward Scissorhands. He's won like four Oscars. It's, and as we mentioned before, the monsters in this are a real highlight. They are fantastically designed, really effectively shot. The way their tongues shoot out is really upsetting. Yeah, he, he passed away in 2008, so he would have been around when this movie was made. Though he may not have been working. He didn't supervise the effects. Now, it was um, his studio, though. So the same kind of, like, craftsmanship we would expect from from him would pass over, at least partially. Uh, yeah, they, they were supervised by John Rosen Grant for Stan Winston Studios. And then they had a couple other effects teams from different companies that did a lot of the digital work. Uh, the CGI in this movie is really solid. There's a little bit of that kind of early or mid-2000s like shininess to some of the creatures, but I don't think it looks bad. I think it works in the setting. Did yeah. anybody pick up on the composer for this movie? I don't think I noticed mm -hmm. that. The score was composed by Clint Mansell, who is one of my favorite film composers. He is a frequent collaborator with Darren Aronofsky and has composed what is probably my favorite movie score of all time, which is The Fountain. Huh. This isn't his best work. No, it's it's not <laughs> great. <laughs> it's not bad, uh, But it's, it's decent. Uh, um, he, I think he probably felt somewhat hampered by the expected music from the game because Doom does have a very, like, expected soundtrack to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They apparently approached Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails to do the music for this movie, but it took so long in development and production that like, by the time they got around to doing the music, he just like didn't care anymore. That's a shame. 
Um, which is a shame because I think he would have had the the right sensibilities for a score for this movie. The, the version of this movie that we both watched, I believe, was the unrated extended cut. And the reason for that is because this movie was released on VHS, UMD, which is the mini-disc format used by the PlayStation Portable, DVD, HD DVD, and Blu-ray. Mm. But the th- the only formats that had a theatrical cut release were the VHS and UMD versions. Every other version is only the unrated extended cut. So the only way you can watch the true theatrical Doom experience is on a VCR or a PSP. <laughs> so take our like our praise, I guess, with a teeny bit of salt in that... The reactions and, like, bombing of this movie may be more justified. We don't know. We haven't seen the version that everybody else would have seen in 2005. Yeah, there are about 10 minutes of added footage in the extended version. I have no idea what those minutes are. I don't know how it changes our read of the movie, but take that as you will. And one of my last fun facts is that this movie got rebooted last year direct to video there is a direct to video reboot of this movie called doom annihilation because apparently annihilation is just the subtitle that you attach to any low budget video game movie for some reason (laughs) i'm assuming this was to tie in with the recent uh reboots of the games or at least attempt to do so i hadn't heard of it at all before this i did not know about this until last night (laughs) all that aside this movie do we want to rate it or do we have other things we need to say uh i I think we can move into ratings lexi do you want to start no i don't (laughs) nathan do you want to start i give this movie one first person shooter sequence out of hardcore henry i give this movie credit even though it doesn't have a hell portal um i give this movie one extra life (laughs) one round of a bfg um the bfg wasn't even relevant in this movie it's like he got it and then he fires like maybe three rounds but it doesn't actually hit uh, any like monsters yeah that that's an element that's a little bit it lacks some payoff, I think. No, I find that funny because the BFG finding it feels like a big hero moment and then the guy becomes less and less of a hero as the movie continues, so the gun is also completely useless. Also, why are they doing weapons research at this archaeological facility? Well, it's good that they had them there, wasn't it? But it was never it didn't useful. Help. It was locked in a closet and nobody ever used it. Oh, the way they get the BFG, by the way, is that he uses oh, yeah. the severed hand of one of the scientists to like get into the facility. There's a lot of planting and payoff in this movie that is planting and payoff in a plot mechanics sense, but doesn't really have anything to do with the like emotional beats of the movie. But it is effectively done. Yeah. Like all of the planting and payoff works, things don't usually come out of nowhere and stuff usually isn't set up and then never dealt with. So, I mean, again, we're rating on a curve here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we should, at least for this one, because I think we've made our thoughts clear with the others where they fall on the spectrum of video game movies. 
I would put this in the top tier mm-hmm. of the movies we've watched so far. This is top 10, probably <laughs> top five. We, we've watched like 14 movies, though. Top three? <laughs> it's definitely one of the better ones we've watched. Yeah, this is perfectly fine, if a little bit thin in spots. Mm-hmm. It's like a slightly better... Um, oh, God, what was the one we watched with the cat aliens? Oh, Wing Commander. It's like a better Wing Commander. Yes, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. It, fe- it yeah. feels a lot like Wing Commander, but better. It's like if, you, mi- that- if you put Wing Commander at 1.25 speed and had better characterization everything yeah everything <laughs> yeah God, those cats uh, look terrible <laughs> and on that note we're gonna wrap this up thank you all for listening to this episode of video game the movie the podcast you can find me on twitter at kenzie phoenix you can find me on twitter at bert nerd tram you can find me on twitter at conwell underscore alex you can, you can find the show on twitter at vgtm podcast and you can find all of us on Dice Weave. Lexi, plug the pluggable. Yes, uh, you can find Dice Weave at Dice Weave Pod on Twitter. You can find it bas- probably anywhere that podcasts are, in theory. We're mostly hosted on Podbean, but I think you can get us on Spotify and iTunes. Uh, Definitely are, iTunes. Yeah, we are. We are. We do Mass Effect things. We're in space. There's. They, they they just went to a garage and met a mechanic guy, and that was fun. And, and that's it. That's all there is to it. Yeah, there's definitely not an imminent car chase. I thank y'all for joining us. We'll catch you later, guys. Don't Thanks. forget to save. See you at the next checkpoint. Boop, 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 boop. Boop.